Holy Father, we believe, but Lord, help our unbelief. We hear in your holy word that where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in their midst. Help us, O God, to know this, to feel it to be true in our hearts and souls. You have said that you inhabit the praises of your people, that you sit enthroned upon the praises of Israel. Help us, O God, to be confident, assured that that is exactly what will happen as we lift our hearts and voices in your praise. Draw near, prove your presence to us, and so inspire and empower us to offer you worship pleasing in your sight. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.
That lovely dwelling place of which we read in the 84th Psalm is God's people gathered for God's worship. Let us worship God. The hymn number 100. Please, we have confessed the holiness of our God. We cannot do that without 
immediately being reminded of our own unholiness that leads us to the confession of our sins. Now God's people together from their heart. Most holy and merciful Father, we confess to you and to one another and to the whole communion of saints in heaven and on earth that we have sinned by our own fault in thought, word, and deed against your holy law by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have not forgiven others as we have been forgiven. We have been deaf to your call to serve as Christ served us. We have not been true to the mind of Christ. We have grieved your Holy Spirit. We confess to you, Lord, all our past unfaithfulness, the pride, hypocrisy, and impatience of our lives. Have mercy on us, O Lord, and forgive our sins. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You remember the great account of Isaiah's call to be a prophet of the Lord, how he saw the Lord high and lifted up the seraphim hovering above him in the temple. And uh, conscious of the Lord's holiness, he fell to his knees and confessed his sins, saying to him that he was a man of unclean lips and he dwelt among a people of unclean lips. And then comes this, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. In that beautiful moment, the whole of the biblical and Christian doctrine of forgiveness is encapsulated in a magnificent way. Forgiveness for each individual who confesses his sins, as we have just confessed ours. Forgiveness based on the sacrifice, the altar, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, but now made available in each individual's own time and space and personal history as he seeks it from his heavenly Father's hand and heart. Stand to your feet, confess this forgiveness by giving answer to this question from the Heidelberg Catechism. Why do you say that by faith alone you are right with God? It is not because of any value my faith has that God is pleased with me. Only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness make me right with God. And I can receive this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than by faith alone. We'll continue our confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ with this supremely beautiful hymn of Charles Wesley, Thou hidden source of calm repose.
set the Lord Jesus Christ before you and sing to him. Please, and now to the Word of God and the Law of God from the Lord's Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, we're reading from verse 16 to verse 24, the two short paragraphs the editors of the ESV entitled, Fasting and Lay Up Treasures in Heaven. Reading it together and reading it as part of our worship, 
amounts to the making of a promise to God. He said, if we loved him, we would keep his commandments. We've just said that we love him. And now it is ours to pledge that obedience. And we do so by reading some of the commandments that the Lord would have us to keep. So, beginning at Matthew 6, verse 16, reading to verse 24. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now add to the worship of your heart and your lips that of your hand and life, your tithes and offerings.
present ourselves, our gifts to God, stand and confess your faith in him. Joshua chapter 21, having considered in chapter 20 the establishment of the cities of refuge, an important 
element of Israel's criminal justice system, we move now to the much larger number of Levitical cities, of which only six happen to be cities of refuge. We have read several times already in the book of Joshua that the tribe of Levi would not be granted an allotment in the promised land as the other tribes uh, were receiving. In 1314, we read to the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance, as he said to them. That is, they would be supported by the offerings of the people, not as the other tribes, by the agricultural production of their land. Then later in that same chapter 13, we read again, But to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. And then once more in 18.7, The Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. Three different explanations as to why the Levites did not get a portion of the promised land allotted to them. All of this repetition signals a subject of some, a matter of some importance. It's ours to consider what that matter must be. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came to the Eleazar the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, The Lord God commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in, along with their pasture lands for our livestock. The mention of the land of Canaan, which seems somewhat redundant at this point, uh, lays emphasis on the fact that the Levites too, however uniquely, received their portion of the promised land. So by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. The pasturage around the city supplied, in other words, what the offerings of the people of Israel uh, would not. Think of cows and Goats giving milk and so on. Now, it's natural that the Levites would come to ask for their allotment. They had been guaranteed one, uh, however different in kind, and every other tribe of Israel had received its allotment. They had been promised, actually, 48 cities, as you read in Numbers 35, and that is what they will receive. They serve here as an example for us of what Calvin calls Presuming on the veracity of God. The principle of daily Christian living is just this. Assume that the Lord will be true to his word and then act accordingly. Or as Oswald Chambers simply put it, trust God and do the next thing. Now verse uh, 4. The lot came out for the clans of the Kohathites. So those Levites who were descendants of Aaron the priest received by lot... From the tribes of Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin, 13 cities. And the rest of the Kohathites received by lot from the clans of the tribe of Ephraim, from the tribe of Dan, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, 10 cities. The Kohathites were divided among those who were in the direct, uh, descent, direct, direct line of Aaron the priest, and so were in the priestly line and could be priests themselves. And then those who were Levites but were not descendants of the Aaronic line. The Gershonites received by lot from the clans of the tribe of Issachar, from the tribe of Asher, from the tribe of Naphtali, and from the half-tribe of Manasseh in Bashan, 13 cities. The Merorites, according to their clans, received from the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the tribe of Zebulun, 12 
cities. These cities and their pasture lands the people of Israel gave by lot to the Levites as the Lord had commanded through Moses. Now what we have in general or in verses 1 through 8 is a general overview. The remainder of the chapter provides the detail, the names of all of these uh, different cities. The Kohathites, Gershonites, and Merorites were the three clans of the tribe of Levi, descending from Levi's three sons. Each clan shared certain responsibilities as Levites, and as well, each had certain responsibilities assigned to it for work at the tabernacle. You read about all of that in the book of Numbers. Now, I'm not going to read the list of the 48 cities, the tribes averaged Four cities apiece as their contribution to the Levitical cities. Western and Eastern Manasseh functioned as a single tribe for the purpose of contributing Levitical cities, each contributing two. The Levitical cities are designated here. That doesn't mean, as we've already seen, that they were necessarily in Israel's possession at the time. Some of these cities may not have been occupied by the Levites for some time, perhaps even for um, some very long period of time. Now drop down to verse 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed All came to pass. The final three verses summarize the book to this point and complete the third of four major sections of the book of Joshua, that section describing the division of the land among the tribes of Israel. The emphasis, as you see, falls on the Lord's faithfulness. Don't take this for granted just because you are so familiar with the story. Nothing like this had ever happened in the world before, and really nothing like it ever happened uh, ever since. From the Exodus through the conquest, the Lord fulfilled the promise that he had made to Abraham centuries before, and did it in the most extraordinary way. Now, our Father in heaven, we have before us another of those chapters, the initial impression of which seems to be somewhat unpromising. What is there for us here? Help us to understand why this book or this chapter is in the Bible and what it means and what it portends and what it teaches for the life of the church and our lives today. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now, we might consider from Joshua 21 the Levites as, in a way, the representative Israelites. In Deuteronomy 18.6, their life is described as the life of a sojourner, a pilgrim. The point apparently being that they were never to own the property uh, on which they lived. They, the city might well be a Levitical city, and that's where they might live and work, but the real estate still belonged to people from Judah or Manasseh or Simeon or whatever. But in that way the Levites served to remind the Israelites as a whole that they too were sojourners in this world. One tribe actually living the sojourner's life as a testimony to all the others. They serve us, the Levites, 
in the same way. As David said to the Lord in 1 Chronicles 29.15, For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. Something you and I can never be reminded of too often. We are here for such a short period of time. This one life to live here in this world by faith in Jesus Christ. We're to see ourselves in these Levites living in their cities that don't belong to them. But I don't think (coughs) that is the main burden of this chapter. So I intend to preach another sermon. The subject, once again, as last week, concerns a fundamental feature of the Christian view of the world and of their life in the world. It's also one of those sermons preachers do not like to preach. It concerns the minister himself and his office and so invites the inevitable comparisons. If that's what a minister is supposed to be, why aren't you more like that? It's just the sort of thing I know a lot of you are thinking. But don't worry, I will rise above your petty judgmentalism and give you a sermon on the text. Because the subject is here, an entire chapter of the Word of God is devoted to it, and we need to do something with these Levitical cities. What are they here for? Why do we need to know about this? The ministerial office is critical to the health and spiritual welfare of the people of God. It always has been. It always will be. Now, to be sure, the Levites were not exactly the equivalent of today's Christian minister, but all in all, they may not be as different from him as you might think. While the priest and the Levite might be the same thing, they usually were not. There were many more Levites than priests, and only priests superintended the worship of God's people at the temple, the sacrificial worship, the offering of incense, and so on. But, of course, most of Israel's worship did not take place at the temple. It was at least several days' walk for many, if not most Israelites, whether to the tabernacle at Shiloh in the early days or to Jerusalem and the temple there after Solomon had built it, one could hardly spend most of every week getting to worship and coming back from it. So only three times a year were Israelite men required to attend worship in the temple and women and children were never actually required to attend the sanctuary. They sometimes did, probably often did, but God did not require them to come. God never made temple worship both essential and unavailable at one and the same time. So for most Israelites, the weekly service was in their town or village, as it is for you and for me today. We know comparatively little about the weekly worship of Israel in those early centuries after the conquest. There is a great debate, has been for a long time in biblical scholarship, as to exactly when the synagogue came into being. And usually it is thought much later in Israel's history, perhaps even after the exile. Though to be candid, there's precious little evidence one way or the other. But whether it is right to say that the synagogue, with its specific associations, already existed in Joshua's day, local weekly worship certainly did. In Leviticus 23, first in a list of the feasts and festivals of Israel's liturgical calendar, 
we read of the weekly Sabbath. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. The term translated convocation means a gathering of people for the purpose of worship. Precisely what that assembly amounted to is hard to say in detail, though it seems very likely to me that given what we know of the development of Israel's worship to this point, it must have contained hymns and prayers and the hearing and the teaching of the word of God. What else would it have contained? In other words, were you and I to have been there, we would immediately recognize it for a worship service. With almost everything present, we expect to find in a rightly ordered worship service except the sacrificial meal. In fact, we do know this. The Levites were the preachers or the teachers of the ancient church. Later on, there would be prophets from time to time, but ordinarily, week in and week out, preaching and teaching of the word of God were provided by the Levites. When Moses blessed the tribes of Israel before his death, we read in Deuteronomy 33.10 that among other things he said of Levi, they shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. It was because they were the people's teachers that they needed to be scattered throughout the land, not living together in one corner of it. As Moses had said long before, their cities were to come from the territories of the other tribes. The rationale for this appears to be just this practicality. If they were to be Israel's local pastors, they needed to be located close to every town and village in the land. A city of refuge needed to be within a day's walk of any place in Israel. So there were six of them. But Levitical cities needed to serve the pastoral care of every Israelite in his own location. So there were 48 of these cities distributed throughout the entire territory of Israel. If you want to know what the message of Joshua 21 is, here it is. It is the Lord's provision of the ministry of the word for his people. It is Yahweh's making sure that his people, all his people will know and understand his word, will have it applied to their lives so that they might live in faith and obedience before him. In Joshua 21 is about there being a ministry for the people of God. In the world of persons that God has made, in the world of persons that Christ has redeemed, it was inevitable that there would be a person responsible for the preaching and teaching of the word of God and the truth of God. And while Joshua 21, at first blush, is about cities, it is about cities only insofar as Levites, men with a particular calling of preaching and teaching the word of God, should be spread throughout the towns and villages of Israel within easy reach of every Israelite. Now, I can't point you to chapter and verse to describe the Levitical ministry as it was exercised in Israel, we simply are not told what they did or how they did it. Did they travel to nearby towns to hold services every Sabbath? Probably. Were individual Levites assigned to individual villages 
or in larger towns to individual gatherings of worshipers? Probably. Did they remain the pastors of the same people for years on end? Perhaps. Who can say for sure? But given that the spiritual needs of people have always been the same, given that we know that the Levites were the teachers, the appointed teachers of the word of God, given that when Israel was spiritually revived in her history, as for example, under the rule of King Jehoshaphat, as you read in Second Chronicles 17, the teaching, preaching ministry of the Levites was an instrument of that revival. And given that the Levites overlapped with the priests who superintended the people's worship at the temple, it seems a pretty safe conclusion to draw that the Levites were at least broadly what we would call local pastors or ministers today. Joshua 21 is the beginning of the office of the local pastor that has continued ever since in Christendom. Now, to be sure, there have been some changes made since Pentecost, changes appropriate to the epoch of the Gentiles. Ministers are no longer confined to a particular Israelite lineage as they were in the Old Testament. Paul, for example, refers to himself as a priest in Romans 15, though he was of the tribe of Benjamin, not of Levi. He said he was a priest, not because he descended from Aaron, but because he was a preacher of the gospel. That is, he was a priest because the Lord had called him to do the very things that priests had always done before, namely, preach the word of God. What is more, there was no longer to be a separation between the worship of the local assembly, what the Jews then called the synagogue, and the worship of the temple. They were combined in the worship service of the church in the new epoch, a service of word and sacrament that was no longer tied to a sanctuary in Jerusalem. But these differences being acknowledged, the office with its duties is largely the same in the New Testament as it was in the Old. In the Old Testament, too, we read of faithful shepherds of the sheep. That is, they were involved in whatever since has been called the cure of souls. Such must have been their work. The Levites. The church has had its leaders from the very beginning, and they have always been teachers and preachers of the Word of God. What is more, the life of the church waxes and wanes, its fortunes rise and fall, according to the faithfulness of those who occupy that office. Call that office what you will pastor, preacher, minister, priest. Priest, remember, is simply an English transliteration of the Greek word presbyter, for elder. There are some things about life that make the Christian ministry in its historic nature and function simply inevitable. The word of God needs to be taught. The entire Bible bears witness to that fact. There is a power and an effect that attends the word of God when it is well taught Uh, by, uh, by learned and capable pastors. The Holy Spirit ministers life and holiness to people through their pastors and preachers. The whole Bible bears witness to that fact as well. And God's people need pastors to help them navigate the troubled waters of this world by helping them to understand how the grace and the mercy of God, how the law of God, the wisdom of God, the justice and the goodness of God illuminate their circumstances in daily life. They need pastors to show them, as Paul puts it, 
how through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Have you followed the story in the news this past week about the late Jackie Kennedy's letters that she had written to an Irish priest? She met Father Joseph Leonard on a visit to Ireland when she was just 21 years of age, and for the next 14 years until his death in 1964, she wrote him from time to time concerning her relationship with God, particular events in her life, her courtship, and then marriage to Jack Kennedy, a stillborn baby, their first daughter, troubles in the marriage due to Jack's womanizing, and then his assassination in 1963. In one letter written not long after the president's death, she confided that she was so bitter against God, but then added that only he and you and I know that. She wrote that she was trying to make peace with God, that she didn't want to raise her children in bitterness. What is fascinating about the letters is precisely that they reveal a side of Mrs. Kennedy, confidences, expressions of personal feeling and private opinion that otherwise she kept to herself. She felt free in writing to Father Leonard because she knew her secrets were safe with him and because she felt he would both understand and appreciate both joy and sorrow in her life, be able to speak helpfully into her life. She said at one point it was good for her to write her thoughts to him because she really didn't share them with anybody else. Do you not suppose, human nature being what it is, human life and sorrow being what they are, that there were Levites in Israel in those days who had ministries of comfort and personal care, just like that. Levites who ministered to individuals like Mrs. Kennedy, as Eli did to Hannah or Elijah did to another heartbroken woman. But whatever the shape and character of a typical Levite's ministry, from that time to this, the church has had a ministry. In this respect, Joshua 21 is an important turning point in the history of the world and the history of the Christian church. From this point on, God's people will assume as a matter of course that they require a pastor ministers of the word of God and that they should have them in their immediate locale. It would not be too much to say, I think, that we have in this chapter the commencement of what would ever after be known as the local Christian ministry, the pastorate. That ministry, of course, is a subset of the world's leadership. When you think about the world and its history its epochs, its developments, its catastrophes, its successes, you naturally think of the men whose leadership, for good or ill, give direction to that history or gave direction to it. Can you describe the history of Israel without mentioning Moses or David or Solomon? Well, in the same way, can you describe the history of Rome without mentioning Julius Caesar or Augustus or Marcus Aurelius? Can you think of American history without George Washington or Abraham Lincoln? The history of the world is to some significant degree the history of its great men, its leaders. And the history of the church is no different in that respect. 
We know comparatively little about the thousands and eventually millions of Christians who populated the church in its early centuries after Pentecost. We have very few literary remains to help us understand what their lives were like, what experiences they passed through, and so on. But their stories are taken up into the stories of the great men who led the way for the church, from Origen to Cyprian to Athanasius to Augustine, and so on. Pastors, preachers, all, by the way. The Reformation was a movement that depended upon the spiritual and intellectual leadership of Luther and Calvin and Knox. You can't explain or tell the story of the Great Awakening without some consideration of the ministries of Whitfield, Wesley, and Jonathan Edwards. Victorian evangelical Christianity, which had such an immense and long-term impact upon this modern world of ours, was the effulgence of the zeal of a generation of missionary pioneers who were leaving, who were leaving Great Britain by the shipload, month after month, through the entire 19th century, or of the preaching of Charles Spurgeon, and so on. And so in our own day, in a very real sense, the history of the church is the history of its ministry. In this way, too, the Levites are the representative Israelite. We know the great ministers, but underneath them, invisible to history, are many times 48 cities worth of Levites, ordinary men who conducted the ministry of the word Lord's Day by Lord's Day and day by day. True enough, among them were some turncoats and traitors who gave their people everything else but the pure word of God. There were others, alas, who were simply unsuited for the work. That's always been the bane of the church's life, as it is the bane of the world's life, inadequate leadership. It's the nature of human life as God made it. It wasn't only in Jesus' day that it could be said that there were so many who were sheep without a shepherd. Not because there were no shepherds, but because the shepherds they had were useless. But there were as well large numbers, generations of faithful pastors who through the ages have cared for the people of God and have sought to do their best to make sure as sojourners they made it safely to the end of their pilgrimage. Generally speaking, it was a law in Israel and it has been a law ever since that when the church grew weak, When it began to decline in numbers, when its voice was no longer one to be reckoned with in the culture, it was because the church's ministers had failed in their duty to teach the word of God and to inspire the church to live by that word. And vice versa, when the church was renewed, when her faith and hope and love were revitalized, it was almost invariably the case that first came the renewal and the revitalization of the church's ministry. I'm a minister, so I am always reading about ministers. Some of them are the great men whose names you would know. Many of them are such men whose ministries would be more like these Levites, whose congregations were in outlying towns near Hebron or Libna or Beth Shemesh. For example, I've been reading of late a modern study by a University of Washington history professor of the ministry of Mark Matthews. In his day, a very well-known American minister who in the 1920s and 1930s 
built First Presbyterian Church in Seattle into the largest Presbyterian church in the world. He was very well known, at least in his time. But a brand new book just arrived this week on my desk. It is the first ever full-length study of the ministry of Henry Gorecki, a Lutheran pastor from St. Louis, who for a year or more in 1945 and 1946 was the pastor, the chaplain, of the Protestant defendants and their families, the Nazi war criminals at Nuremberg. It is a remarkable story of pastoral work, of gospel preaching and appeal, of the truth of God being brought to bear on a small group of human beings who were the most vilified people in the world of their day, who had committed horrific evil. And there, in the middle of this small group of individuals, a Levite, a simple, uncomplicated Levite. At the outset, these men who had strode the stage of, uh, of the world for so many years, had done such immeasurable evil, had been instrumental, some of them more than others, in the murder of millions, found themselves very little impressed by Henry Gorecki, his unequivocal faith in God, his unpretentious sermons. The Allies would be judging the crimes of the Nazi leaders at Nuremberg and sentencing them to their fate. That's what they cared about. But it would be this Missouri Synod Lutheran pastor whose task it would prove to be to convince these men, these men whom the world loathed and wanted dead, everyone, to convince these men that it was really God's judgment that they ought to fear. But over time, Gorecki's ministry began to tell. Months later, near the end of the trial, upon which the entire world's attention hung day after day, as newspaper reports of what was said, the testimony that was given, and so on, uh, were given in great detail. I say, near the end of the trial, a rumor circulated among the prisoners. We're talking about Goering and Ribbentrop and Rosenberg and Hess and Keitel and Jodl and Speer and some others, the cream of the Nazi high command, that Gorecki was to be allowed to go home. He'd not seen his wife for th almost three years. The defendants, perhaps the most famous people in the world of their day, wrote a letter to Gorecki's wife, Alma, back in St. Louis. All 21 signed it, even the Roman Catholics who had their own priest all 21, many of whom would be executed in a few months' time. Frau Gorecki, your husband, Pastor Gorecki, has been taking religious care of the undersigned defendants during the Nuremberg trial. He has been doing so for more than half a year. Now we have heard, Mrs. Gorecki, that you wish to see him back home after an absence of several years because we also have wives and children, we understand this wish of yours very well. Nevertheless, we are asking you to put off your wish to gather your family around you at home for a little time. Please consider that we cannot miss your husband now, 
During the past months, he has shown us uncompromising friendliness of such a kind that he has become indispensable for us in an environment that is filled with cold disdain and hatred. Our dear chaplain Gorecki is necessary for us not only as a minister, but also as the thoroughly good man that he is. Surely we need not describe him as such to his own wife. We simply have come to love him. It is impossible for any other man than him to break through the walls that have been built around us in a spiritual sense even stronger than in a material one. Therefore, please leave him with us. Certainly we shall be deeply indebted to you. Only three men, these men were being communicated with every single day, but only three men among the Allied staff at Nuremberg spoke German uh, to these defendants. The two chaplains, Gorecki and the Roman Catholic, and the psychologist. Hans Fritsch, the radio Nazi, the Nazi radio propaganda chief, one of the few defendants who would eventually be acquitted, wrote later, Pastor Gorecki's view was that in his domain, God alone was judge, and the question of earthly guilt therefore had no significance as far as he was concerned. His only duty was the care of souls. In a personal prayer, which he once made aloud in our queer little congregation, he asked God to preserve him from all pride and from any prejudice against those whose spiritual care had been committed to his charge. It was in this spirit of humility that he approached his task, a battle for the souls of men standing beneath the shadow of the gallows. Fritsch would later write a book about his Nuremberg experience in which he offered his opinion of all the prison officials, the most outstanding was the insignificant-looking, unassuming Lutheran pastor from St. Louis, Gorecki. Isn't it astonishing and wonderful that there was a faithful Levite at Nuremberg offering life to the deadest men in the world? And isn't it still more striking and wonderful, and doesn't it tell us virtually everything we need to know and believe about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there seemed to have been some men who actually found life at the very end of their earthly pilgrimage there in Nuremberg because of the ministry of this Levite. That man and that ministry and hundreds and thousands and perhaps millions of others like him and like it find their beginning in Joshua 21. God has made the world as well as the church to depend upon faithful preachers and pastors. He's left us in his word clear instruction regarding what such men must do and what they must be. He has taught us to understand how essential their work must be for every Christian church, every Christian family, every Christian individual, as well as the salvation of the world. We have here in this chapter, in other words, a chief part of our understanding of how the world works and how salvation comes to men and women. No thoughtful Christian with a Bible in his hand will ever underestimate the importance of the Christian ministry. Our world would be unrecognizable to us without it and infinitely worse. Amen. Our final hymn is a hymn of the sanctuary of God, of the worship services of God's people, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, 343.
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, our Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.